What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. It is an empire. You can help the family. Which is not exciting, and everybody knows it. At least it's my name, sweetie. Our name, sweetie. Ah, yes, what signals Thanksgiving week more than the sound of bitter family squabbling? Hadn't thought of House of Gucci as a Thanksgiving movie, but I guess it works. Ridley Scott's true crime drama with Lady Gaga and Adam Driver is one of the titles we'll get to in this week's roundup of new releases. And we'll talk about the nominees for this year's Golden Brick Award. That and more. Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. <laughs> oh, boy. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So hear me out on this, Josh. You actually weren't part of Film Spotting when the Golden Brick Award was created, but I'm putting forth a petition to change the name to the Josh Larson Golden Brick Award, as you're apparently the only one who sees any of these movies. <laughs> well, maybe this year that's the case, and that's that's too much pressure for me. I don't want it. I reject it. Okay, fair enough. And you know what? It's not really accurate anyway. I've done some homework. You're going to get my take on a couple of these Golden Brick shortlisted titles, and I'm going to throw one into the mix as well. Excellent. More on those Golden Brick nominees later in the show. But first, we have seen some movies, Josh, just not all of the same movies recently. And it occurs to me that all three of the films we're going to talk about here are based on real people, though probably fair to say that none of them could be described as traditional biopics. Let's start with... House of Gucci, which opened wide on Thanksgiving Eve. That's one you saw that I have yet to have the pleasure of catching up with. House of Gucci is the second film in about a month we've gotten from director Ridley Scott, his period epic The Last Duel with Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and zero crazy accent, so I'm told, came and went from theaters pretty quickly despite some very positive reviews. That's one we both are hoping a screener arrives soon for, Josh? Yeah, that would be nice, and I, I mean... I'm pretty sure, I forget if it's Damon or Affleck, but one of them sports a whopper of an accent. I've heard, mm -hmm. I've heard. So hopefully we'll get a chance to enjoy that ourselves. Okay, I have been misinformed. Adam Driver returns here in Gucci as Maurizio Gucci, grandson of the founder of the iconic fashion label. It's the 80s. He's married to Lady Gaga's Patrizia, who has ambitions to shake things up at Gucci. This is all based, of course, on a true story. And also in the film Playing Gucci's, how about this murderer's row, Josh? Al Pacino. Jeremy Irons and Jared Leto, a concoction of American and British actors playing Italians with varying degrees of commitment to the accent work. The reports I've seen suggest that it approaches camp. Maybe it goes so far past camp that we don't even know what to call it. What would you call House of Gucci? Well, that's the question with this movie. And I think, you know, the marketing has kind of set itself up to make that the question, at least the trailers that I've seen, even the early stills that were released of Adam Driver and Lady Gaga suggested uh, a camp approach to this. I think if audiences go in hoping for a two hour and 40 minute, I believe it is, maybe a little mm. longer, um, hoot, they are going to be disappointed because a lot of this is quite dull. Now, other portions do approach camp. And here we go to that tricky question of what does camp mean to you? I've always kind of defaulted to pure camp for me um, are people who are taking the material seriously, 
are perhaps aware of its melodramatic possibilities and tendencies and may nudge things a little in that direction here or there, but otherwise, you know, have respect for the material. I don't consider camp to be what Jared Leto is doing in this movie, which is like massacre theatering the heck out of this role. You have a gift, I'm telling you. Oh, stop. Stop, you're going to make me. You're going to make me cry. Nobody has ever said that to me. Nobody. Paolo, why don't you have your own line? What he's doing, you know, by making the accent a punchline in almost every scene is he's distancing himself from the material, right? He's kind of winking and letting us know, I know I'm being ridiculous. It doesn't help that he's either in heavy makeup or prosthetics and almost unrecognizable. Um, and, And he wants, desperately wants us all to be in on the joke. So that's one level that the movie is operating. Um... But aside from that, he's on one end. And then you have Driver's Story, which we both love Adam Driver. And I've got to say, this is one of the most dull performances I've seen from him. And I think it's Mm. because this character is being set up as the straight man to the Lady Gaga uh, figure. And he doesn't have a ton to do until the final third, where uh, I'll just say he kind of is asked to suddenly become something of a villain. That... um, turn is not well set up in terms of the characterization. Um, And so you have long stretches of this movie, which are pretty boring. Uh, I'll just say are not camp in any way, shape or form, however you define it. And drivers, unfortunately, stuck in those sections. So there's one person who's nailed this, at least for me, for my understanding of camp. And that is Lady Gaga. She's great here. And essentially what she's doing is she's well aware of, you know, how she can just give the clink of an espresso cup as we see in the trailer and make that kind of this um, thrilling, entertaining, melodramatic gesture. Her eyes, as we knew from A Star is Born in 2018, you know, the, the camera loves her. She knows how to work the camera and she knows how to flash those eyes. And in this role, she does all of that. But here's the trick. And she does this wearing, you know, period, but yet really, I don't want to say ridiculous, but outlandish outfits. Let's say that outlandish outfits um, and hairstyles. Yet you get the sense that she believes in this character and the material at the same time. And that to me is the key. Like you want to thread that needle for something to be camp. You, You don't want everyone thinking that they're just making something that's a joke. Um, I don't think that really, you know, hits for me in terms of camp. At the same time, Lady Gaga's accent, it's off the leash as well. Uh, And it's it's kind of all over. But there's a humanity to her character, too, that is always there in each of the scenes, even as she's entertaining us. So I was really disappointed in this. Um, And the main warning I would just say is like, if you go into it not expecting it to be almost three hours of of laughing, um, maybe you'll be better prepared and you'll enjoy it a little bit more than I did. I don't think it works overall. You could point to Scott and say, isn't he the one who should kind of manage all of these tones and deliver something consistent? I don't think he manages to do that. Um, and so this really only works for me when Gaga is on the screen, which is a fair amount. So, so you know, there is that. This is an unfair trivializing question, but as we are cramming here for end of the year critics ballots and our own top 10 shows, is House of Gucci worth seeing because of Lady Gaga's performance? And is it so good that I need to be sure to consider it before I finish my ballot? Or are you not 
willing to rate it that high? I mean, that's a really tough question. I don't have her performance that high when I look at others that I've noted so far this year. I think it's just a matter, as I said, of what is surrounding it kind of being at turns deadening and off-putting to me um, that uh, it's just hard to kind of put it at the level of other performances that are contributing to a film that, you know, on every other cylinder is also hitting. House of Gucci is currently playing in wide release. We're going to stick with you, Josh. You also caught up with Spencer featuring Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana. It's directed by the Chilean director Pablo Lorraine, probably best known for another intimate portrait of political royalty, 2016's Jackie with Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy. Lorraine also, like Ridley Scott, directed another movie that came out earlier this year, Emma. Spencer isn't a birth-to-death portrait of Diana, but is like Jackie about a brief but critical time in her life. In this case, it's a weekend in the early 90s when Diana's decided that her marriage to Prince Charles and the demands of being a part of the royal family just isn't working for her. Probably not fair to compare them, especially since I've seen neither. But I know, Josh, you are a fan of the series The Crown. I think a recent season covered the time period that this film does. So... What is Lorraine up to here that makes this portrayal of Diana so different, if anything? Yeah, it's totally different. As a matter of fact, I was talking to someone who's a big fan of The Crown, really frustrated by Spencer. And I think it's just because they're looking for something that Lorraine and Kristen Stewart are not at all interested in providing, which is a larger view of this familial institution. I mean, we go maybe a third into this movie before another royal family member is given a line of dialogue. So this is locked in, as Jackie was, on its central figure, on its main character. And I think it works a little bit better here than it did in Jackie. I wasn't quite as taken with Natalie Portman's performance in that film as others were. And I think Kristen Stewart is doing something a little more interesting under similar conditions. The movie, the camera is tight on her face almost all the time. It's following her down these ornate hallways as Lorraine did with Portman in Jackie. Both of these films have a Kubrickian shining sort of vibe to them. Um, But here what works is I feel like it's almost pushed further into the realm of psychological horror. And you get this by some other elements that are added, talking about a movie that everyone is on the same page. You have this dissonant, omnipresent score by Johnny Greenwood. The cinematography by Claire Mathon is so spooky, so misty and morose. These grounds seem to have this fog around them that seeps through the walls into these halls. And then you have Stewart's performance, which... We both, we devoted a a show to her a couple years back, Adam, so appreciate her as an actress. I think she is um, doing some really strong work here and also falling back sometimes, as Portman did, to sort of a mannered rhythm of the dialogue, delivering it in a way that it's almost like a song, a melody that you recognize after a couple of scenes. She's playing the same melody the way she's um, spitting out these words. So it took me a little bit to get past that. I, what I think she is really doing well is, again, 
going back to Lady Gaga and House of Gucci, using her eyes and giving us darting eyes there of portraying this woman who feels trapped and is looking for a way out. And really the most impressive thing about her performance is her use of posture because it changes so often. Sometimes it does mimic iconic imagery of Princess Diana, but more often or not, you watch how it shifts because she's aware of who's watching her and she'll carry herself totally differently, which is just a fascinating thing to trace over the film, how she's doing that. So I think Stuart um, is really good here. And for me, it was maybe a little more successful than Jackie. So fans of Jackie, I, I, I would imagine would really go for Spencer as well. They are circling us. Didn't you know? Don't you read? It seems they're circling just me. Not you. Just me. The thing is, Diana, there has to be two of you. You know, there's, there's two of me, there's two of father, two of everyone. There's the real one and the one they take pictures of. You have to be able to make your body do things you hate. That you hate? Yes. So out on House of Gucci, but in on Spencer. Do I you have got that, it. right? Yep. And you are correct. We devoted a top five to Kristen Stewart, our top five Kristen Stewart scenes back in March 2017. That is episode 627. If you want to look that up, you can find that over at filmspotting.net. Click on lists. And Spencer is currently playing in limited release. I have an original rock musical. Hey, boy genius. And I've spent the last eight years of my life writing. He's getting out. You're going to be rich and famous. And rewriting. Did you crack it yet? Oh, I'm getting so close. And rewriting. Can I hear it? Any day now. Eight years! And the time keeps ticking. Tick, tick. All right, let's keep rolling. Get to a film that we both saw, Adam. The musical drama Tick, Tick, Boom. This came to Netflix last weekend. It's directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and based on work by the late Jonathan Larson, probably best known as the composer and lyricist of Rent. Tragically, Larson died in January of 96 on the day of Rent's first off-Broadway preview performance. So before it went on to really reach iconic status, he would actually win three posthumous Tony Awards and a Pulitzer Prize for the landmark musical. Tick, Tick, Boom started as an autobiographical one-man show that Larson began performing in the early 90s. So this would have been when he was writing Rent. After his death, it was adapted into a three-person show playing off-Broadway in the early 2000s. So Miranda's film takes that piece and expands it from that trio to a sprawling ensemble. It offers a look at Larson's life as a struggling artist in the years leading up to his breakthrough. Larson is played in the film by Andrew Garfield. Adam, seems like this should be right up your alley. You're a theater fan, a musical theater fan. Did Tick, Tick, Boom tick all the boxes for you? Yeah, it did. And in fact... It did so much that I'm very nervous that you're going to tell me the music isn't all that great or Andrew Garfield isn't all that great. Both things would make me very unhappy, Josh. I think the overall conceit here works very well. I'm a big fan of the structure of Tick, Tick, Boom. This is Larson simultaneously showcasing, performing the musical that is born from 
the roughly year-long experiences and failures that we are watching play out while he's trying to get another musical made and basically break out and become the Broadway star he always envisioned himself being. And I do think Garfield brings it here in a couple of ways. In terms of the musical performance aspect itself, his vocals and his overall charisma, but also the ways he really doesn't shy away from showing Larson as a guy who, let's say, can be maybe a little bit unreliable. There's a great moment in the film. I'll call it the camera buff moment. I've mentioned this scene before over the years here on Film Spotting, a discovery during an old Krzysztof Kieslowski marathon. His first film, I think, and the first film in that marathon was this great film called Camera Buff about a man who picks up a camera and starts making documentaries as an amateur filmmaker. And he becomes so obsessed with it that as his marriage is crumbling around him during a fight with his wife, as she's basically, I think, kicking him out of the house, he can't help but be envisioning how it will look through the lens if he was actually filming this scene right now. And there's a scene here in Tick, Tick, Boom where basically this breakup scene is happening and he does deeply love this woman. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And yet I think he starts tapping on her shoulder as they're embracing. And she knows that he's basically composing this moment as a musical number in his head. He's just not able to cut off the creative spigot, which is what makes him Jonathan Larson genius, and maybe not so much, as I said, Jonathan Larson, always reliable friend or a great guy to be in a relationship with. And I think Garfield does lean into that stubbornness, that need, that need that overrides everything else in his life. I saw Bianca Soto's review of this movie on Letterboxd. She's our trivia spotting pal and a longtime listener of the show. She does, full disclosure, have a rent tattoo. So you got to figure she's she's in the bag for this movie. And she says, it is very meta and reminiscent of all that jazz in his depiction of art imitating life and the artist being obsessed with his passion. I think Jonathan Larson would probably have a bit more ways to go to be the brilliant bastard that Joe Gideon is in all that jazz, of course, playing Bob Fosse, but it's here and it's enough there on screen to make Larson a really compelling figure beyond the creative genius that he was. Yeah. And that's the point where we're really going to differ on this one, which kills me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not I knew so it. I knew it. worried about disappointing you, Adam, no offense, but it's folks like Bianca and it's, I'm imagine maybe possible former theater kid, still theater kid at heart. Um, I'm a friend of theater kids, Adam. I raised a theater kid. I know the family that can provide. I'll never forget her freshman year, you know, starting drama in high school and being like, I found my people. I've seen that energy. Um, we provided the meals for the seven hour rehearsals from, you know, after school till late at night. And I, I love that stuff, but I could not get on board with this one. And I tried so hard. I held back on my reservate, my initial reservations and thought, you know what, give it some time, sit down, go back to your notes, write about it. And, um, mostly when I do that, I'll find things to write about that I like. And I just kept getting more and more frustrated as I wrote. And it's connected to what you talked about. I think there is, um, you know, the, the way I could wrap my mind around it is th to think about this figure that they've concocted for this film 
Garfield's not the problem. I mean, I think he's very good here. Impressive in, in terms of a musical performer. Um, maybe his energy is a little high note. He's like, he's like a hundred percent. The show must go on almost all the time, mm-hmm. but extremely talented. And I, I did not have an issue with him, but the figure they've concocted here of Jonathan Larson is this black hole that nothing else can escape from. Uh, no other character no other concern in this story. He is there's the movie is so insistent on him being the uber struggling artist that I I found it at the end really off putting. And I noted those things that you're talking about, that there are scenes where, um, you know, he will will we'll recognize how he is. Alexandra Shipp plays his girlfriend, his dancer girlfriend, how passive aggressive he is about discussing their future together, right? When she gets this job offer. There's another moment where it's clear he's prioritizing his workshop over caring for an HIV positive friend played by Ben Ross. So the movie gives us those moments you're talking about. But even then, it contorts their stories and characters to ultimately serve his narrative. Every moment is about serving his narrative. And not only that, but take a look at that narrative. And it is one note about the struggles of an ambitious, creative person in New York City. Every song is about that. And while some early kind of got me, so the one that I really liked um, was actually a Boho Days. There's yeah. a party at Larson's cramped apartment. It's mm-hmm. acapella. I think yeah. Miranda, this is one of the rare cases where he shows some distinctiveness as a director. He uses space and movement really well. And it captures, you know, what it's like to dream big from the, a small perch in New York City. This is the life of Bobo Bobo. This is the life of Bobo Bobo. This is the life of Bobo Bobo Bohemia. Showers in the kitchen, there might be some soap. Dishes in the sink, brush your teeth if you can cope. Toilets in the closet, you better hope there's a light bulb in there. Today. Revolving door roommates, prick up your ears. 14 people in just four years. Ed and Max and Jonathan and Carolyn and Carrie. Good stuff. Then every number that follows repeats that same thematic round in different ways. We get, you know, what it's like to, to how frustrating it is to be a server at a diner on Sunday morning, how, when you're swimming in a pool, you can find artistic inspiration. Yeah. And this just kind of, it's kind of like mundane stuff that's being inflated to mythic proportions in this attempt to lionize this idea of Larson. And I want, I don't want to say that I know I'm not in the bag for this sort of material as you are. You know, um, I can be suspicious of art about making art, right? On the record for that. So I thought to myself, well, when does it work? And there are examples like, um, think of Charlie Kaufman's adaptation, okay? Or even something from this year, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part Two, which is very much about a film student interrogating her own projects and talent. Both of those have a raw, honest introspection that even with the moments you highlighted, I don't think Tick, Tick, Boom has. Now, what are other art about art movies that work? Well, the ones where the talent on screen is so immense that it doesn't matter what they're singing or dancing about, you know? So something like um, Summerstock, classic with Judy Garland, Gene Kelly. If they're going to do a showbiz-centric musical, fine. It doesn't really matter because they have that talent. I don't think we have that on screen here. I think Garfield is fine. I think Miranda is, you know, feeling his way through what it 
might be to be a movie director. Um, but and the music, you know, admittedly, maybe not my style. Rock musical rock opera, which not all of this is, but a fair amount, not my style, but I'm not going to hold that against this, right? Because that's a matter of taste. Uh, But I just think overall, we're not wowed by the talent. I think the suffering artist theme does not have enough introspection. Um, And for me, I just came out of this and am still at that place where it was kind of a miserable experience, but one that if my theater kid friends enjoy, please do and forget everything I just said. I can hear Bianca and so many others right now saying what I'm going to say back to you, which is boo. <laughs> boo. I mean, yeah, you're right. All that jazz was invoked earlier. One of my favorite movies of all time. You know, you referenced it. Movies about artists and ambition and the creative process. That's for me kind of my catnip, if you will. But I don't know how to counter what you're arguing, Josh, other than to say everything you're describing as a negative is, for me, what makes the whole thing work. The struggle, that struggle that you found so tedious, is it. I mean, that is the structure of this film and truly what Larson, as we see here, was trying to process. And it is all about him because everything we're seeing play out is his version of events or how he is processing the way it affects his life and affects Mm -hmm. his art. That line we get at the end about writing what you know. So yeah, if you're going to talk about a version here that seems a little narrow in its focus and it's all going through this prism that is Jonathan Larson. Yeah. That's, that's tick, tick, boom. And that's, that's really what I dug about it. So well, maybe that's the problem, though, as you're as you're describing it. For me, at least, you know, you already have an artist whose art, largely as I understand it, I've seen Rent the movie, have not seen it on stage, but uh, from what I understand, you know, is largely about the struggles of being an artist. Mm-hmm. So now you're tripling down on that by yes. making a movie about the struggles of being an artist about an artist who struggled with being an artist and made yeah. art about struggling about being an artist. It's yes. like, you know, yes, it's that's like the meta okay, brilliance of it, Josh, let me out. <laughs> when is intermission? Good yeah, Lord. <laughs> but, but again, I think the only distinction I'd make is it is a story of that discovery, realizing that he could tell that story, which was something new to Broadway. That was something that, that, singled out Jonathan Larson as sure. a voice, yeah. I think. Yeah. So. And, the, and, the, and the cultural impact that it made speaks to that. So absolutely, I want to be clear to separate you know, this particular movie from, from that yeah. Broadway legacy. If you are a fan of Rent, and I don't know many fans of Rent the movie, I am not one either, though I am a big fan of Rent the musical, then that number you reference, Boho Days, will seem very familiar to Bohemia, and it is a great scene, one of the best songs in this movie. I really love the opening number of Tick, Tick, Boom as well, 3090, and I think the Sunday Brunch song is awesome, where all the Broadway stars come out. It is so cheesy and earnest, and this is why Lin-Manuel Miranda will never really be seen as cool because he is so cheesy and earnest. And I say, thank God for it. Yeah. That's like the fan service sequence, right? The Broadway fan service for sure. Yep. Tick, tick, boom is currently playing exclusively on Netflix. Okay. One more very quick one here. I did have a chance to catch up with a new documentary that just opened in limited theaters on November 19th and is also available anywhere you rent movies. That's Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. You know, Josh, that I am 
a big proponent at the end of the year of fitting in as many docs as I can. And you want to talk about artists, ambitious artists, obsessed artists who may be compromised some of their relationships along the way. Kurt Vonnegut's another favorite of mine ever since maybe reading Breakfast of Champions, I think first, I think even before I ever got to Slaughterhouse-Five back in college or just post-college and really having it blow my mind. And it turns out, didn't know much about Vonnegut, the man or the artist until I saw this documentary. It turns out that that's the experience, of course, so many people had when they read him for the first time and why, even though he was decidedly middle-aged, by the time his most well-known books came out and really made him famous, so many young people, about the age I was when I read him for the first time, gravitated to his art. It was that sardonic wit and his kind of just uncompromising attitude to call BS on institutions and our political leaders, but also do it in such an irreverent and creative way, melding science fiction and other genres. And a wrinkle here that I do think mostly works to the film's advantage is that the filmmaker, who's Bob Whitey, he makes it about him as well. But as he says in the movie, and I agree with him, he kind of had to, because this film is also about their friendship. And this film, the making of it, that was 40 years in the making, he reached out to him after he'd made one film that had played on public television or something because he was so obsessed with Vonnegut, such a fan of his work. He said, hey, I'd like to make a film about you. Would you be OK with that? And he said he had seen his previous film and really liked it and said, sure. And that started this four decade friendship that also included him becoming kind of his personal archivist. And at different points in time over decades, he shot more and more footage of Vonnegut, more and more interviews with people. And finally here, what we're seeing on the screen is that all come together. So it's that personal story for Whitey as well and his relationship with Vonnegut. So I like that aspect of the storytelling. And then I think I just appreciated that even though I wouldn't go so far as to say it's remarkably unconventional or that it's in any way really trying to match Vonnegut's aesthetic, it doesn't really follow kind of a birth-to-death approach with Vonnegut and his work either. It doesn't just take us through every single book he made and the different points on the timeline in terms of his success. It appropriately darts around in time, just like Vonnegut does in his work and really structures everything more around some different themes versus, again, kind of this chronological narrative that is focused on giving you everything you'd ever need to know about Vonnegut as if you were, you know, kind of doing a book report. So I did want to recommend Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. And that's available now to stream rent digitally. Yeah, that's right. Came out on the 19th. I think I watched it on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, on a show with a review of House of Gucci, you know we have to do a heavy accent edition of Massacre Theater. That's up next. Plus, we mostly finalize our list of the 2021 Golden Brick nominees. These are our favorite underseen movies from promising new filmmakers. Stay with us. How do you document real life when real life's getting more like fiction each day? Headlines, breadlines, blow my mind, and now this deadline, eviction or pay. Rent! How do you... 
awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I met the girl on the Mary one day But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hot shot actor? She walks through her I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. To the seat with the clearest view. That's from the trailer for Licorice Pizza, the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. It opens in limited release this weekend, but that limited release somehow does not include Chicago, which doesn't get this movie until Christmas, Josh. Rude. You were able, indeed, you were able to get to the critic screening. I, sadly, was not. And I don't want to know a single thing about this movie beyond this. Does someone at any point utter the title? Is it explained? Oh, gosh. Boy, now I'm gonna, you're going to make me look like a, a bad <laughs> viewer because I'm sure there has to be something in there, but I missed it if there Maybe is. Maybe not. I will say Soggy Bottom, way better of a title. I thought so before I saw it. Yeah. And after seeing it, I, w- I will double down on that. So. Okay, but, but in fairness, isn't it possible that if we all got hooked on licorice pizza when we then found out it was going to be called Soggy Bottom, we'd be like, PTA, what are you doing? Yeah, you're probably right about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with you. I got really attached to Soggy Bottom. So haven't seen it. Don't know which title is more appropriate. I hope to find out soon. And if I am lucky enough to find a way to see this movie, know the right people, Josh, and I can check it out. Then we might just review it on our next episode. Something similar is hopefully going to happen with Sean Baker's new film, Red Rocket. That opens in limited release on December 17th. So both of those films in our queue, so to speak, and we will see if we get to them on our next episode. Next week, I will probably also have some thoughts on Peter Jackson's Get Back. This is the director's three-part, six-hour doc about the making of the Beatles' final album, Let It Be. It premieres this weekend on Disney+. Plus. Now, I don't know how I'm going to find six hours away from the family to fit this in. Fortunately, I do have many Beatles fans in my family. Now, is Get Back of interest to you, Josh, or are Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit the only three-part series you ever care to see from Jackson? <laughs> Another question would be, are you going to tell me that just like Tick, Tick, Boom, you know, The Beatles kind of overrated. Don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, not my type of music. No. Mm. (laughs) We talk about, you know, movies that turned us into maybe not cinephiles, but budding cinephiles kind of opened our eyes up to like, oh, this is a movie for me, believe it or not, even though this happened in like the late 80s, it was the Beatles where I was like, oh, this is music. Mm-hmm. This is the stuff. And it was, you know, my best friend across the street, his older brother, who I don't know why he got into the Beatles. I mean, he wouldn't have been the right age either. But I remember he had, I forget the title of it, but I can see the cassette. It was a double cassette collection, the red border. They were like looking over a balcony yep. or something. Yep. You know what I'm talking I know about, what right? you're talking about. Yep. He had that, lent it to me, put it in my, for some reason, hot pink, whatever it was, <laughs> yeah, whatever we inappropriately call it at that time, yeah. and was like, yeah, oh, this is a whole different thing than any music I'd ever heard, and I was hooked. So, so yeah, all that to say, definitely interested, but this is not the time of year for me to invest in a three-part, <laughs> six-hour documentary um, when I'm trying to finalize my top 10 list, so probably something I'm going to have to catch up with down the road. 
Okay. Well, for me, it was Rubber Soul. My parents had two Beatles albums that back when I was a kid, they weren't listening to regularly. But when I got a record player and tape deck combo, Josh, you know, wow. state-of-the-art hi-fi for the time. Look at you. Yeah, I got out my parents' records, The Bird's Greatest Hits I listened to all the time, The Beatles' White Album, and Rubber Soul. And I would put on Rubber Soul and hear that opening number, I've Just Seen a Face, and I was hooked. Which you won't, incidentally, if you go out and get Rubber Soul, if you don't already own it, you put in the CD or whatever, download it on Spotify, probably won't hear I've Just Seen a Face. One of the best Beatles songs ever because that was like the British version of the album and the American one or something had Drive My Car on it. And I still hold that against Drive My Car to this day. I love it that you as a kid went immediately to like Art Beatles. You know, just totally. just skip over Love that superfluous album. common pop crap. Yeah. Get, get me to the pretentious Beatles. That's where I want to live. <laughs> you know, that's the thing, though. Even then, that pretentious stuff, quote unquote, was so catchy. Of course. That it was easy. It of was course. so easy for an eight-year-old to Absolutely. become obsessed with it, as yeah. I did. Put put my kids uh, to sleep to Sgt. Pepper's many a time. So, there um, you go. So it works. Also next week, we'll have results from our recent Get Back-inspired film spotting poll question, which asked you, what is the best music documentary of the last decade? The current film spotting poll gets us back to Paul Thomas Anderson. It asks you, what is your favorite PTA film? And this is a Sam Van Holgren film spotting producer posed question, as they all are. And so he really wants us to be sure to emphasize that this is favorite, not to be confused with best. And in our newsletter this week, he shared links to my PTA rank list on Letterboxd, your PTA rank list on Letterboxd, and his. And we all three have different titles at the top. So how do you feel about the premise he proposed that the consensus best is there will be blood? But if you ask about favorite, that maybe yields a more diverse response? Or do you not see the distinction, Josh? I mean, I usually don't see the distinction. This is yeah. why I get into I trouble. And, and people and people accuse me of being a heretic because I, I don't have maybe at the top of a certain list what everybody else has. But I get it. I get that you can respond to movies. Um, maybe a way to think about it is love versus respect. So I do understand the impulse. And what I got to say, we'll let folks go to Letterboxd and peruse those rankings. But I think I think Sam might be right with this one. His number is one is, well, I don't want to say. We'll, we'll let folks go and, and compare and we'll maybe revisit when we have the poll results. But his number one is one that I think will become my number one with one more watch is what oh, I'll say. So it's Phantom Thread? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So good. It's so good. Yeah. Which I have very low on my list, but that's just how good Paul Thomas Anderson. Sure. This is one of those pointless rankings because there's not a bad movie in the bunch. Yeah, for sure. So best versus favorite. I don't want to suggest I don't see the distinction because let's face it. I've seen 2001, I think only twice in my life. And I've seen Pitch Perfect maybe 2001 times. So I get it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I usually try to err on the side of the one that I think is best is also the one that I find the most watchable, the one I have the most respect for, whatever, whatever phrasing or framing you want to use. So yeah, I put There Will Be Blood as his number one. I think that's going to be his enduring masterpiece. Now, whether or not 
I right now want to put There Will Be Blood on or watch Boogie Nights again? I guess my answer is I'd put on There Will Be Blood. I think it's that good. It's my number Mm -hmm. one for a reason, and I'm sticking with it as his best film and my favorite. Okay. Fair enough. I think that is going to come out on top. I think it's it just has the monumental reach, ambition, and topic and subject, yes. you know, yes. for that. So it makes sense. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. We have a quick giveaway announcement, and this is very fitting for this Golden Brick special we're doing this week. Josh, we've got five Blu-rays to give away for the new religious horror film nominated by you for a Golden Brick St. Maud. It's the debut film from writer-director Rose Glass, a boldly original vision of faith, madness, and salvation in a fallen world. It is one I am going to catch up with before we do our official Golden Brick voting, and you could catch up with it as well on Blu-ray. We've got five to give away. You just send us an email with the subject line, St. Maud. But in the body, we've got a real challenge for you. You have to look back at all of our Golden Brick winners. I think it goes back to Moon in 2009. I know Moon was the inaugural winner. I'm just blanking on whether or not it was 2009. I think that's right. You have to tell us which one is your favorite. Of all of those winners, many great films among them, Josh. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, St. Maude in the subject, and tell us which one of those Brick films is your favorite. If you need to refresh your memory, go to filmspotting.net. And click on this, you will find a link there. St. Maud available now on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital. And I will say about it quickly, Adam, you asked about, you know, I love Lady Gaga in House of Gucci. Could her performance be one of my favorites at the end of the year? For sure, I know that Morphid Clark in the title role here is in contention for that. She's just incredible in a very strange and demanding and disturbing performance that I cannot wait uh, to hear what you make of. Okay. I cannot wait either. You know, you know, I love my horror, Josh. Mm -hmm. I just can't wait to be terrified. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a great pairing. Well, they always do, but I really like this one. We talked about and recommended the new film on Netflix a few weeks ago, Passing. They have put that together with Douglas Sirk's Imitation of life. I have not seen Imitation of Life, a great excuse to finally force me to watch it. Passing, as I said, is on Netflix, and Imitation of Life is available to rent on most platforms or possibly at your local library, if not maybe interlibrary loan, Josh. I know with your marriage to a librarian, we're big on pushing the ability to get the movies you need to see at your local library. I'm looking at two DVDs right on my shelf here I got through Interlibrary Loan. I love it. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More information is at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you ad-free episodes, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. We have one in the works right now, set to come out soon. Ask Us Anything, Volume 2. The first go was such a success in October, Josh. We opened it back up, got some really good questions, and we're going to devote an entire episode to just taking film spotting listeners behind the curtain a little bit of the process of making this show for 16 years. And with you, Josh, I was doing this math the other day. I mean, we're we're over 10 now, aren't we? Aren't we approaching 11? 
Uh, are we over 10? I think I think I started in 2012, right? I think you, you guested for the yeah. first time. You tried out, if you will, in 2011, but you officially started early 2012. So, you know, we've got a little ways to go, but but we're close. Do I get a watch? What do I get? A t-shirt? Can I get a t-shirt? Casio? Casio watch? <laughs> can I do that? Yeah. You can definitely, you could definitely get a t-shirt. Awesome. We also have our monthly trivia spotting events, though we did take December off because we've got to watch six hours of Get Back and about 600 hours of other films. That will return in January. Some great guest captains lined up. We look forward to playing trivia spotting again with our film spotting family members and Quizmaster Thomas Todd. If you would like to partake in all of that fun, patreon.com slash film spotting. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. What's the matter with you? Oh, what do you want? You said you wouldn't drink today. No, Ma, I ain't drinking. You promised you wouldn't drink anymore. You're not going to drink anymore, are you, Jim? No, Ma, I ain't. And you're going to change those stinky leathers you've been wearing for the last three weeks. Nah, I don't know about that. What are you on? Ooh, it's just some low-grade assets, not heavy. Oh, Jim. Oh, God, you know, I oh. cooked. I cooked the stuff. Oh, baby, it's and okay. And people are coming, you know? Ray and Dorothy think that we're flaky enough, and you know that you said that we would wait until after, and now you're going to peek before me. No, no, it's cool. We'll trip, and then we'll eat our feast. Yeah, sure. That was a very chill Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison, <laughs> and Meg Ryan as Pamela Corson in 1991's The Doors, written by Randall Johnson and Oliver Stone, and directed by Stone. Along with that massacre, the show featured a split review of Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. I was a pretty big fan, Josh not so much. We both quite liked that week's installment in our Jane Campion Ooh Review 2003's In the Cut. So why that scene from the door as well? Our listeners are bright, Josh, and they got all the references. Corey Cogarty in Hershey, PA says, while the reenactment might have been more evocative of hippie girl Janice from the Muppets than Jim Morrison. <laughs> is that who you were channeling, Josh? Admit uh, it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, you got it. The movie is Oliver Stone's The Doors. Coupled with this week's Last Night in Soho review, it's clear that it's all about the music, man. Nice. Here's Les Basho. The connection that immediately pops to mind is Meg Ryan's performance in The Doors and in The Cut. Val Kilmer has been in my mind lately because of the recent doc on Amazon. However, the scene has a more personal connection. I am a committed motorcyclist, but also a safe motorcyclist. My kit consists of a leather jacket with safety armor and padded leather pants. If you have ever worn leather pants, they are protective against road rash, but not overly comfortable in the heat. Even this fog-bound edge of the world can get hot in the summer. Every time I put those pants on, I would think of that scene where Meg Ryan complains about Val as Jim Morrison's smelly leather pants. Every time. And I only saw the movie once. You will be glad to know I finally invested in armored fabric pants for the height of summer, but spring and fall will forever bring that scene to mind. Thank you, Les, for all of the details there. I believe, unless he is moved, Les is in... Waverly, Nova Scotia. That's the fog-bound edge of the world. It Got sounds it. lovely, Josh. Now, it's funny how lines like that, single lines like that from a movie can really stand out and just become part of your 
almost everyday life. Here's Jamie G in Leeds, England. He says, easy one for me this week. My friends and I have always enjoyed the phrase, just some low-grade acid and drop it into conversations <laughs> quite regularly to explain relatively minor misdemeanors such as turning up to the pub late, forgetting <laughs> each other's birthdays, etc. I might co-op that. I might steal it from Jamie and his gang. Sounds pretty That's handy. That's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Eric Rebner from Decatur, Illinois. It's the doors, man. Adam and Josh broke on through to the other side with their performances, girl. They couldn't get much higher. Okay, well played, Eric. And here's Chuck Griffin in Eugene, Oregon, who says, Adam's performance may have been too good for Massacre Theater. Man, who picks out these comments? Who picks these comments? Really smart. So kudos to Josh for bringing the requisite so bad it's good charm and managing to sound like more of a burnout than Jim Morrison ever did. (laughs) Not sure if the higher octave modulation was to disguise Jim's identity or an earnest attempt to add the wispy, airy, fairy aspect of 60s flower child that was so deficient in Kilmer's portrayal. Mm. Making the myths, Chuck said. It sounds to me like I improved on Kilmer's performance. Really what it is, Adam, is I just hit that sweet spot I was talking about in terms of House of Gucci. You know, the the camp. I know the potential. But I have respect for the material. (laughs) Got it. And with that, let's reach into this kind of brimming film spotting hat and pick out the winner. Our winner is Rose Messer from Naperville, Illinois. Oh, man. Congratulations, Rose. Longtime listener. See her at a lot of film spotting live shows back when those were a thing. I might be in Naperville this weekend. Rose, I'll just... I'll just hand deliver it to you. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll set you up with that prize. Broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are so wrong. Well, this will be something (laughs) as we move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre. I think in the interest of not making this a 20-minute segment, we might reduce the pauses just a little bit. We'll we'll pick up the pace. Mm -hmm. We will... We will perhaps bastardize the scene, and that would make unhappy at least one character in the scene <laughs> if we did that. But that's that's what we're going to do. We have listeners to think about here, Josh. Yes, we're going to remove the pregnant pauses that really do add a lot to this scene and just concentrate on the dialogue. Yeah, I think the tie into this week's show will be fairly obvious unless we really just completely butcher this. Josh, you started off, so I'm going to give you the action. I know I'm not ready. Are you ready? Sure, why not? Here we go. And action. What do you think about that, huh? Take a risotto off of the menu. I'm sorry. What did you say? Forget it. No, no, I know here. Tell me what you say. Tell me what you say. Well, it's just that risotto costs us a lot. And it takes you a long time to make. I mean, you have to work so hard to make, you know? And then we have to charge more. So I think, take it away. Sure. Really? Yeah, that's good. Huh. Yeah, grazie, okay. Maybe instead we could put... Uh, yes, just tell me, tell me, what else? Um, I was thinking... What? What do they call it? You know, it's a... Uh, come se dice? Manicati. No, it's a uh, hot dog? Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dogs. I think the people would uh, like that. And scene. <laughs> I mean, there were two words in this scene that had to work. 
and you nailed them. Congratulations. Okay. Hot dog. You got it. That's that's all I was aiming for, Josh. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, December 6th, and we're sorry, Italy. Yeah, indeed. And Transylvania. The winner will be selected <laughs> randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. How was work? Yeah, they're really cool. I mean, mainly women, mostly uh-huh. white. I think you should have a good girls' night. Do you two beautiful ladies want to dance? Sounds from the trailer for Test Pattern, which spent 2020 playing the virtual film festival circuit and is now available to rent on most platforms. It's the directing debut of Shatara Michelle Ford. And Josh, you are adding it to the list of nominees for the 2021 Golden Brick Award, which means here you are again giving me more homework. Thanks. For I that. know. I'm sorry. I just I've had my eye on this one for a while and hadn't had a chance. So uh, I just fit it in recently. Before we get to your thoughts on Test Pattern and the rest of the Brick nominees, and I should note, I've got a nomination as well. Let's quickly explain what this Brick business is all about. The Golden Brick is our annual award for the overlooked or underseen film of the year. It's a way for us to recognize new, emerging, or maybe just new to us filmmakers who have shown a strong directorial vision or ambition. It's an award we've been giving since 2009. Notable winners include Dogtooth from Yorgos Lanthimos, Sean Baker's Tangerine, The Act of Killing from Joshua Oppenheimer, and Bing Liu's Minding the Gap. How about that as just a small sample of the lineup? Yeah, we have a pretty good track record here. Some formidable company, one of these films and filmmakers, could join. The current shortlist for the 2021 Golden Brick are, and these were all nominated by you, Josh, but hey, I have been doing some homework. I'm going to chime in here with some thoughts as well. Those noms are St. Maud from Rose Glass, Lamb from Iceland's Valdemar Johansson, Identifying features from Fernanda Valadez, those are the three I still have to see. But here are two that, Josh, I can validate. I can confirm your nominations here for Nine Days from director Edson Oda and Shiva Baby from Emma Seligman. Both very good films. I have a couple thoughts. Which one yeah. would you like to start with? Oh, man, I'm glad. these are the two that uh, you know I thought might resonate with you most from that list. So I'm glad you were able to fit them in. Uh, yeah, hit me with Nine Days first. Well, the plot summary for Nine Days, if you're not familiar with it, is a reclusive man conducts a series of interviews with human souls for a chance to be born. And that does completely sum it up while also leaving lots of room for your imagination and a lot of details to be filled in. And I think a strength of this movie is that it does not get bogged down in explaining how any of this really works, but it does give you enough detail in the world building to become fully immersed. I I noticed at one point during a conversation, and I think it's one The movie does this quite a bit where it cuts between some of these different conversations because the interviews are basically the same. They're just with different people all applying for this job, so to speak, of of being born, of getting to start life. And in the background, there's a clock. And I noticed that the clock, the time never moves because because why would it in this space? And you've got the old school technology 
the VHS tapes and the outdated TVs where the man played by Winston Duke, who's watching these lives, he basically records moments. He's seeing sort of being John Malkovich style. He's seeing what they're seeing exactly, but it's just all on, on these VHS tapes. And, you know, there's nothing about what we're seeing unfold that matches what should happen in the quote unquote real world, which characters in this movie even reference the real world. And presumably you could use any technology you needed to utilize or imagine to perform this job. But maybe it's also a case where this is the technology the interviewer is comfortable with. You know, the movie kind of kind of leaves those details up for you to consider. Your senses will become unbearably sharper and stronger. <laughs> it's your new beginning. You'll never remember me or anything else that happened in this place. <laughs> but you still be you. Really strong ensemble here. Speaking of the old school technology, there's a scene with Ariana Ortiz as Maria that is essentially a recreation of classic movie making, you know, using projection and a bicycle. And that really hits. And the ending of this film mm. hits just the right emotional note. And it justifies the entire Winston Duke performance up yes. to that point. Yes, that's a, that's a great way to characterize it because I think I even had some questions about that character and maybe even the performance a little bit, but it all pays off with yeah. a sequence that, you know, really is a little mini bit of performance art on its mm -hmm. own embedded at the climax of this movie. Yeah. So definitely recommend nine days, which is available on VOD now and recommend Shiva baby. The description here is set mostly in real time. Shiva baby focuses on a young woman whose life seems to spiral out of control when she bumps into her sugar daddy at a Shiva. This is a comedy and it is very funny <laughs> that bases all of that humor on character and situations versus jokes. I do think it's legitimately funny and also seriously discomforting and not in, let's say, a, a Teton way, but in a, that exchange is so awkward and cringy that I want to fast forward way. Yeah, yeah. And there are, I don't know, 27 of those in the relatively brief runtime of this movie. Well, uh, are they taking care of you, making enough money now from the babysitter? No, Dad, not nearly enough, considering all the hard work that I'm doing. Oh, it's a good thing that you don't need the money. I'm saving up for something. Oh, yeah, well, what are you saving up for? Your own apartment? Yes, she's doing just that. Daddy's not going to be paying for that apartment forever. You know? But she's very hardworking. Listen, maybe you and Max could could discuss this in more detail yes, together. Yes, I mean, maybe he could, he could help you find the ideal position. Yeah, I'm sure he can, but... But I already have a plan and a path, so I don't Look, need that. Sweetheart, feminism isn't exactly what I call a career. It's not you know? my career, it's a lens. Uh, through which to see my career. Oh, that sorry. tension is also largely because of the filmmaking. And this is why I think it is definitely eligible for the golden brick. We've got the handheld camera always in these characters' faces in these crowded conversations, everyone is invading everyone else's personal space, literally and figuratively. And the editing and the sound design really combine to make for this claustrophobic effect where like the main character played by Rachel Sennett, Danielle does a couple of times, you'll want to run away. You'll want to run out of the room gasping for air. And there's a little moment I noticed in the filmmaking where... Danielle is outside with 
a character named Maya, played by Molly Gordon, who I recognize from Booksmart, and she's fantastic here as well. And they have a lot of history together. They've been in a relationship together, but they've been apart for some time. And there's a little bit of a rivalry there and a lot of tension. And they're outside smoking a cigarette. They're finally away from the party. They're kind of in in an alley, maybe between houses, but they've just vacated the space outside where this party is still going on and the space inside where the Shiva is happening. And I won't get into what happens in the scene, but they they finally kind of have this this break in the tension and a respite from all of this insanity. And the sound really disappears. And once Maya walks away and then Danielle follows her in separately, it's kind of like she walks across a threshold, that threshold being the gate where people are mingling. And you just notice subtly the sound come back on, the conversations mm-hmm. that are taking place in that space that just emphasizes this sense of, of them truly for a second, even though they're only maybe five feet away actually getting away for this this private personal moment with each other but then it's then it's back to reality and this is another one like nine days that has a really strong ensemble i think senate is very good molly gordon as i said as maya you've got Polly draper as debbie the mother fred melamed being fred melamed <laughs> as as the father to Danielle. And I thought Danny DeFerrari, who I've never seen before or don't remember seeing it before as Max, who's that aforementioned sugar daddy is also really good. Yeah. Did you get any vibes? And I forget if I maybe mentioned this or referenced it when I first brought uh, Shiva Baby up on the show from a previous Golden Brick nominee, uh, Krisha from Trey Edward Schultz, because right. That claustrophobia, that like, yeah, social dynamics. It's it's Krisha, but replace the psychological horror with comedy but yeah absolutely right the the claustrophobia you're exactly right and it being this this singular occasion and this one character this main character everything unfolds around her and her state of mind and her point of view in both films and she is just out to sea. The that main character yeah. is out to sea and struggling, swimming against the tide to try to mix metaphors here, I guess, in in both films. So yeah, I absolutely did think of Cretia and think they make a a pretty a pretty good pair, the one that might scare you away from wanting to spend any time with your family exactly. over the holidays. So yeah, definitely co-recommend Shiva Baby. So all of these films we just listed are feature directing debuts. They're all available to rent on most platforms. And yeah, let me get to one more nominee that I fit in recently. It is Test Pattern, another harrowing watch, though, uh, for very different reasons, I would say. This comes from writer-director Shatara Michelle Ford, and it basically traces a relationship that is rocked when the woman is sexually assaulted while out with a friend. The next morning, her boyfriend guides her through the increasingly bureaucratic process of filing a police report, obtaining a medical examination. So the movie is broken up into three sections, really. We see how this couple meets. Uh, They are played very well. I mean, these are really lived-in, comfortable performances by um, a pair of actors who have a fair amount of experience, even though this is a writing-directing debut. It's Brittany S. Hall and Will Brill, both quite good. And the first third, maybe a little less than that, is chronicling how they met and the rapport they build up and really this cozy 
domestic space they build for each other, safe space. Then we get the night of the assault where the filmmaking really becomes um, kind of bravura and bold and and interesting. Even what you're watching is, you know, very disturbing. Uh, Renisha, the Britney S. Hall character, is out with a friend. A couple of men approach them and ply them with drinks. It's it's heavily implied they slip them some sort of roofie at some point. And we see as Renisha is dancing, you know, Ford employs these streaking colors, some really interesting editing going on to capture her disoriented state. And then the next morning when Renisha reconnects with Evan, it becomes something like, you know, in some ways, Adam, it reminded me of a film we reviewed never rarely, sometimes always. Yeah. Also a Golden Brick shortlister. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Just, a just finalist. Kind of tracing, you know, how the system is not set up to provide either the care or the justice that these people are searching. And it's complicated by the fact that Renisha is black, Evan is white. She works in a corporate job, manager job, very professional white collar. He is a tattoo artist. So as they're negotiating these systems, they're responded to by people. Race and class both come into play. And Ford never shoves that to the forefront. The filmmaking here is really subdued but effective. We kind of get this sense of um, their their frustration seeping into the atmosphere. And so I do think the movie, and maybe this is a testament to just, you know, how engrossed I was, it leaves off maybe a little earlier than I wished it had. Not because I wanted resolution to this story. I think that's the point, is that these two are not going to meet resolution. But this is such a rich couple at the center there were more there was more to explore it seemed to me about how this has rocked their dynamic so for the filmmaking though um and the boldness of the movie and the topic itself i think that is that is enough and the performances too to put it on our list so that's test pattern i will add it to my list to see i'll add it to our golden brick shortlist page at filmspotting.net and josh i'm going to now return the favor and give you one to watch. See, I'm not going to let you just own this Golden Brick Award. I'm doing my homework here. All right. I'm seeing some stuff. Indeed. The Killing of Two Lovers, directed by Robert Machoyan. This debuted way in the before times. Back in 2020, the Sundance Film Festival. It did have a limited theatrical run, however, earlier this year. Right now, if you want to watch The Killing of Two Lovers, it is available to Hulu subscribers, also available on demand on most other platforms. Machoyan's directing credits go back to 2008. He has a couple co-directing credits on features, but Two Lovers, it's the first I've heard of him. I don't know if you were aware of him before this, Adam. I was not. The film itself is about a couple trying to keep their family of six together after their marriage has fallen apart. It stars Clayne Crawford and Sepeda Moafi. What did you make of The Killing of Two Lovers, Adam? Man, this is so my golden brick jam. <laughs> it's it's an intimate character study. And I say that because there's a small number of characters. It really is David's story, the Clayne Crawford character, but it is a two-hander with the wife that he is estranged from, that he has basically agreed to move out but only under the assumption that they are going to get back together, really, that they're going to figure out a way to make this work, that it's difficult, he's going to give her some space, but hopefully it'll all work out not only for them, but for their four children, three younger boys, and then an older girl who's in high school who is taking it the hardest of the bunch. And 
adding to it is the fact that she's in the house. He's now back at his dad's house. And really, the way Machoyan sets up the space, you always are aware of the fact that he can basically walk out his door. And even though it's at a little bit of a distance, he he can see the front door of his old mm-hmm. house. Knows kind of what's always happening, who's coming and going, and it is always on his mind and in his sight. So that small number of characters, a small town on top of it, but against this grand, but also desolate and kind of haunting canvas of the Utah flatlands. And when I say small town where that comes in to play in an interesting way or kind of a fun way, actually, there's not a lot of humor in the killing of two lovers, as you may imagine. But early on in the film, he runs into a guy at a convenience store. You hear him say, hey, Jeremy. And then a short time later, he's kind of chasing his daughter down who doesn't want to go to school that day and is walking away from him, running away, actually. And he chases her down. And there's another guy out in his driveway, kind of that awkward moment where they're having this tense family moment and someone in the neighborhood is witnessing it all. And you hear you hear David say, oh, hey, Jeremy, <laughs> like it's Jeremy again, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because of course it is. You're just going to run into the same people. But as long as we're throwing out comparisons to other Golden Brick finalists and here this is a winner it reminded me a bit of blue ruin oh, the okay. jeremy sonia yeah. film that turned us on to him little bit of a revenge angle here not not quite apples to apples but it's there as suggested by the title macon blair the star of that film and clayne crawford maybe it's the beards but also these guys who are holding in a lot of pain and a lot of anger and of course both films announcing the arrival of a real filmmaking talent. And Machoin is so deliberate and effective here, in particular in his use of long takes, which sometimes are long shots that feature multiple characters within the frame. But he also uses tighter shots and the four three aspect ratio, like Kelly Reichert a lot, to keep everything confined to what's happening to these characters and their psychology with the landscape, instead of becoming the main character, the landscape is just there to inform their psychology and to add to the overall mood. There's one scene in particular I'll mention here, and we focus on these brick films being ones that are made by directors who are making really strong visual choices. Early in the film, there is essentially a car chase where, and I'm not spoiling anything because it is very early in the film, David sees that a man has spent the night at his house as he sees it with his wife and he is enraged and he has followed this man and they leave the convenience store and we just see David speeding down the road. We assume he's following him, but we don't really know. And the reason we don't know is because the camera is mounted on the driver's side window and it stays there through this whole long scene as he chases the man down and at one point actually tries to get out a gun and starts to veer off the road. But you have no sense really of what he's doing, who he's doing it to, or how exactly it's all going down because that that out of the frame mystery just heightens the intensity of that ride that he's on. And again, it keeps it all contained. It keeps it focused completely on David. It's not a thrilling car chase. You could have shot it a million different ways to try to add some excitement. That's not what Machoin is going for here at all. This is a desperate man taking desperate action to try to save his family. 
and that's that's all we're focused on. The approach makes it completely about him and what he is experiencing. I think Clay Crawford is fantastic in this film, a new face to me. And if I haven't sold you, it's on Hulu. It's 85 minutes long. It's absolutely <laughs> going to be a Golden Break finalist. I really strongly recommend The Killing of Two Lovers. I think we're doing the right thing. David, I love you. You love me. We're trying to figure this out. By the time I'm losing her, Dad. Love is a feeling, and feelings, they move in, they move out. Darling, Mom's cheating on you. The short running time, the cherry on top of the cake, right. Doesn't hurt. Uh, I will add it to my watch list, absolutely. And in December, we will narrow this list of Brick nominees down to a smaller group of finalists. And then we put it to a vote. So I get a vote. Adam gets a vote. We have a couple of our critic friends who weigh in. And, of course, the listeners. There will That's be a right. poll with those finalists. So you, too, can vote. And that gets added into the mix to determine who wins the Golden Brick in 2021. For more information about the Film Spotting Golden Brick, including where to see all of this year's nominees, go to filmspotting.net slash bricks. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. What is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? And note we said favorite not best. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, Come On, Come On, the latest from Mike Mills, the director of 20th Century Women and Beginners. Joaquin Phoenix stars there. The Humans from playwright Stephen Karam. He's directing his Tony-winning play. How about this cast, Josh? Richard Jenkins, Beanie Feldstein, Stephen Yun, June Squibb, and Amy Schumer. Not bad. I saw The Humans in its Broadway in Chicago run, really liked the play, and very eager to see the film adaptation. In wide release, Pixar's Encanto, and it says here in front of me, Resident Evil colon, Welcome to Raccoon City. Now, when my eyes first saw this, I thought, <laughs> I thought these were two different movies, and maybe I was taking my children to see Welcome to Raccoon City this weekend, but that's not the case, Josh. No, don't take them to the latest Resident <laughs> Evil installment, please, Adam. Okay. Or you could see House of Gucci, not recommended by Josh earlier in this show on I digital. I don't like the Gucci. <laughs> because we haven't done enough Massacre Theater on this show. <laughs> on digital, you can see 8-Bit Christmas. This is an 80s nostalgia-fueled holiday movie starring Neil Patrick Harris from the director of Goon and It's All Gone, Pete Tong. Or just make six hours for Get Back, Peter Jackson's Let It Be documentary. I can't wait. So next week on the show, what's it going to be? Maybe we're going to talk about PTA's Licorice Pizza, maybe Sean Baker's Red Rocket, maybe Get Back, even if that's a solo review, Josh, but maybe it's Come On, Come On. Maybe it's The Humans. We have a lot of options. We just don't know yet. We have to see how a few things shake out over the Thanksgiving holiday. And once we do sort it out, we'll have it over at filmspotting.net on our episodes page. If you just can't wait, and you don't like surprises. 
Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Did I just set back America-Italian relations for decades? <laughs> it was rough. That was really rough. <sighs> well, the, the note said terrible. Yeah, you did it. Now, does anyone in the movie actually say that? Oh, they say Gucci approximately 684 times. <laughs> and, yeah. and I would say the, the majority are close to that. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.